chapter 22 last week and we were exploring the paradox that we even could conceive of the notion that there is some other reality outside of Hashem. It actually doesn't make sense. No matter how many contractions there's going to be from the original divine light, it doesn't make sense that there should be a being who senses themselves to be separate. It's not natural. Even if you make something very complex into something simple, it's just going to be a simpler form. But to then be able to deny its source takes something crazy, takes something unusual. And that's what we started to explore last week, that the way that comes into being, beings that are, are sitra achra, of the other side, non-holiness, unholy forces, can only come to being through the tzimtzum. And not just a regular tzimtzum, this is the kind of tzimtzum that we called shaviras hakelim, the shattering of the vessels. It is hides Hashem to such a degree that we don't even know he's there. Now, Rabbi Steinsalt speaks about this, and he says like this. He takes this from Chassidus, but he brings it out so beautifully that Hashem is omnipotent, and he, he is infinite. And like him, his abilities are infinite. So his power to create is so powerful that it can create, like he is infinite, it can create infinitely. Hi, Nikita, welcome! His power to create can create inf- infinitely. And just like he is infinite, his power to conceal could conceal creation to an infinite degree. Now, let's look at his power to create infinitely, right? So from this power to create infinitely, the most vast creations can come about. And you can look at something beautiful and and grand from Hashem's creation, and you can say, wow, Hashem is so great. You will see the greatness of the Ein Sof. You will see the creativity of the Ein Sof but you will not see the Ein Sof himself. No matter how much you're going to see from Hashem's creative power, you will not see his infinity. You will just see his greatness. You will see his power of creativity. On the other hand, when we're talking about Hashem's power to conceal himself, to conceal creation to the infinite degree, at that point where you can't see Hashem, that is where the Ein Sof is hiding. And this is not to to glorify concealment, because at the end of the day, our point is to get through the concealment. But it's just to realize that this power of concealment is so, this is, the, this is really the infinity, the power that Hashem could, could hide himself, that we can't even know he's there, that's truly infinity. And the Baal Shem Tov said that once you know that Hashem is hiding, then already you have come to remove the concealment. The utter concealment is that you don't even know he's hiding, as soon as you know he's hiding, that's already a concealment. There's a Chabad song to the words of Achein Atakelmistater. That means, indeed, you are a hiding God. And you would think it would be a sad tune, but guess what? It's a very happy tune. And it's for this reason the second that you know he's hiding, you have managed to remove the concealment. So ultimately, concealment is high! Ultimately, concealment is going to fall away. But up until that point, we have to remember that that concealment is powerful, but Hashem is behind it. And um, so powerful is the concealment, like we said last week, that it can even bring into being things that deny Hashem. So that's where we're up to. And we're up to page two. We only got up to page two. Okay. We're four lines from the top. I'm going to start reading from the Hebrew. For this reason, 
The klipot are called Elokim Achirim, other gods, for their nurture and vitality, which they draw from the realm of holiness, since every existing being draws its life from holiness, does not derive from the countenance, meaning the inner aspect of the divine will, but from the achorayim, the hinder part of holiness, meaning the external, superficial aspect of the divine will. So a few things over here. In the Zohar and Kabbalah, the klipot, the forces of evil, are called Elokim Achirim. Elokim Achirim is from the, the Torah. Elokim Achirim, as Rashi explains, when, he's, when Hashem says you shall not have any other gods, Elokim Achirim, Rashi explains why are they called other gods? Because others call them to be gods. Okay, so that's the simple meaning of the word Elokim Achirim. But Zohar is calling the forces of impurity Elokim Achirim. And actually in this sense, Elokim, God, is holy. The word Elohim actually refers to God. What is it referring to when it calls him Elohim Achirim? It's telling us, where did these beings get their existence from? How are they brought into life? They're brought into life through the level of Achorayim from Elohim. Now, over here it says it comes from the hinder part of holiness. So in order to understand that, we have to examine will. Let's examine our own will, okay? So there's three aspects to will. There's the innermost aspect of will, Hi, welcome. Hello. There is the external aspect to will, and then there's the hindermost aspect to will. Okay? Consider going to work, right? We go to work, and why do we go to work? Because we want to make money. So the reason why we're working is so that we can make money. The money that we're earning for our livelihood is the innermost aspect of our will. The work that we do in order to achieve, to earn the money, is an external aspect of our will. So it's not the, the ultimate uh, goal over here, it's a medium through which we get our goal, but nevertheless, even in this external aspect of our will, we still take enjoyment. You see people that they, if, if they didn't have to work, they wouldn't be working, but while they're working, they like what they're doing. So much so that if a person really doesn't like their work, they're gonna stop working. Well, they should stop working or they're gonna be sick. <laughs> Like, there's a story told of a landowner that, um, you know, he was, in the the olden days, there was called like a parrots. A landowner was almost like a mini king. Like, he literally had dominion over the people in in his little village. So he was going through and watching his farmers, and one of these farmers, the way he cut the wheat was with so much grace. He just loved it, the way he like bent forward with the sickle and... He just like stood there and watched him and I said, wow, you know, you're so graceful with your movements. How much do you make a day? And he said, one ruble. He said, okay, listen, I'm going to pay you. You're going to come to my drawing room every day with these tools. You're just going to do exactly what you're doing in my drawing room. And I'm going to get to look at you. Anybody who comes by is going to look at you the way you do that. And I'm going to pay you exactly what you were getting by working in the field. And he said, wow, this is fun. Like no hard work, no sweat. I just get to go like this all day and get paid. So he goes. And after a few days, he said, sorry, I can't do this anymore. I don't see the work. He, he quit because he didn't see the value of his work. It's one thing to go like this and work hard all day, but then you're ending up cutting wheat and you have a product. Even though this, they're both mediums to achieve his inner desire. He needed money, right? So the, the, in the farm, he was working hard and he was earning money. And so it was a medium and there was the, exter- the internal core of what he wanted to get. Let me make sure this is on. Internal core of what he wanted to get. And he took pleasure, the most pleasure in getting the money, but there was still some pleasure in his work. And when there wasn't pleasure in his work anymore, he just felt like he couldn't do it. 
But then there's something called chitzainius haratzain. That means the the hind. I'm sorry, achorayim deratzain. The hindermost part of will. At this point, there's no pleasure at all. And the altar is going to give us an example of that. But that's when you have to achieve something, and in order to get what you want, you need to do something that you hate doing. For example, and that's the example the altar is going to give over here, is giving something to your enemy. You don't want to do it. So you have to do it anyway. And it is your will, because you, you're, you're doing it in order to achieve something. But nevertheless, Yourself is not there. There's no pleasure. There's no interest. And this is achorayim deratzain. So again, there's three levels of will. There's pnimias haratzain, which is the internal aspect of will. That is inherently what you want. In and of itself, that's what you want. The innermost aspect of will. Then there is, then there is chitzenias haratzain, the external aspect of will. And that's a medium to achieve what you want. And even though that's not the goal in and of itself, nevertheless, you're invested there. You still have pleasure there. And then the third level is, is achorayim deratzain, the hindermost aspect of will, and this is still a medium. You need it to get what you want, but at this point, you take no pleasure at all. You're doing something that not only don't you take pleasure in, but is actually contrary to your will. You're doing it anyway in order to achieve some goal. So now, as far as the Klippas and Sishra Achorah go, they're called Elohim Acherim, other gods, because where do they get their life force from? They get their life force from Hashem, from Elohim, but they get it from Achorayim, the hindermost part, the place where there is no pleasure, there is no desire. In fact, it's actually contrary to His will. Now, of course, not, nothing is contrary to Hashem's will. Whatever exists is Hashem, and He willed it that way. But is His pleasure there? No, He hates it. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain the term countenance and hinder part as relating to the divine will. The explanation in brief. An inner will is direct pleasurable yearning for the object's desire. And an extra, we've skipped the middle one because we're calling that external and then we're calling this hindermost. I'm going to call it a hindermost part of will is that which is as force. The object is desired only as a means to an end, the fulfillment of the inner will and not as an end in itself. The meaning of hinder part is exemplified in the act of a person who gives something unwillingly to his enemy with an ulterior motive. He throws the object to him over his shoulder while he turns his face away from him out of his hatred for him. For one's bodily actions express the feelings of his soul. Thus, when the act of giving is motivated by an external will, and again, we're not going to call it external will because they only, in this rendition, they're only putting two aspects of the will, the inner will and the most external will. But there's actually three levels. So instead of external, we're going to use the word hindermost part of will. The giver turns away his face, which is where the inner facets of one's soul expresses himself, themselves. That's what panim, the word panim, face in Hebrew, it means panim, inside. Your face reflects what's going on inside. When you give somebody, when you give something to somebody who you love, you want to give them a present, when you give them the present, what you're giving them expresses who you are. Your whole self is invested in it. And therefore, when you give something to somebody you love, your face is turned to them and your face is shining. You, you're smiling, you're happy. Your whole self is invested in this act of giving. Then there could be an instance where you're giving something to somebody who there's an, ex an ulterior motive going on over here. You need to give that to them for some reason, but you're still happy to give it anyway. 
let's say, the present that you give to the gardener, okay? So maybe you guys are, you know, he's, he's nice, he's an acquaintance of yours, but he's not a good friend. But it's the right thing to do to give him this present because he'll do a better job of gardening. So you're going to give him a present every once in a while. When you give him the present, you'll still face him. And you're not, but it's not going to be the same pleasure as when you give something to somebody who you love. At that, that point, you're still there. You're still facing them, but it may, maybe with a smile, but not a, a genuine, <laughs> not from the real thing. But then there's going to be giving something to an enemy. At that point, you're not going to even want to face the person. You're, you're so not in it. Your inner self is so not there that instead of facing them, the altar gives the example of somebody who throws something over their shoulder to the enemy because they don't even want to look at them. I have to give this to you. I just don't like you. Not only don't I like you, I, I don't want to say those words. He hates him. And so therefore, he throws it over his shoulder so he does not have to be face to face with him. Kach lamayla. So to on high, the term countenance represents the inner quality of the supernal will and its true desire, namely the desire of Hashem to dispense life to all who belong to the realm of holiness, who are close to Him. But the sitra achara and so too unholiness is an abomination before Hashem, which he hates. He does not give it life from his inner will and true desire as if he delighted in it, heaven forbid. But in the manner of one who unwillingly throws something over his shoulder to his enemy, this he does, this he does, not out of his inner will, but merely to punish the wicked who subjugates themselves to the Klippites and derive their power from them, and to grant a rich reward to the righteous who subdue the Sitra Achra. In order that there may be freedom of choice for the one to be either righteous or wicked, the existence of the Sitra Achra is necessary, and for this reason Hashem gives it life. So why is Hashem giving life to the Sitra Achra? Not because he desires it for itself. He doesn't desire it for itself. He hates it. He gives it life in order to achieve a purpose. But the way he gives it life is from the hindermost part, like somebody who throws it over his shoulder. Think about hurdles on a racetrack. This example is for Rabbi Steinsoff. When we place hurdles on a, race, on a racetrack, right, is the desire for the hurdle themselves? The hurdle itself is only there so that the runners should jump higher. But the hurdle itself is not, has no intrinsic purpose. You don't desire the hurdle. You desire that the runner should jump higher, and therefore you put the hurdle in the way. But the hurdle is only there to serve something else. There's no desire in and of itself when it comes to the hurdle. And that's how it is with the klipa and the sitra achara. Hashem desires that there should be freedom of choice, and therefore he, he created these, force, these forces. Now, the term over here is to punish the wicked and to give reward to the righteous. It's an unusual terminology, and it here, it's here just to um, express the idea of freedom of choice, even though people who analyze the Tanya have, um, have thought maybe, as I'm saying not even though, as well, people who analyze the Tanya have thought that it's also to bring out the idea that Hashem's measure of victory comes out through punishing the wicked. But in general, this term is just to refer to the fact that in order for there to be freedom of choice, there had to be evil. But does Hashem desire evil in and of itself? No, He hates evil. 
But everything that exists comes from Hashem. There can't be anything that exists that doesn't come from Hashem. Hashem is the only reality. So if these things exist and they come from Hashem, where do they come from? From which divine power do they receive their life force? They're so, they, they deny Hashem. They, they are against Hashem. Hashem hates them. So that's why they're called Elohim Acherim. They're called Elohim Acherim because they receive their nurturer from the aspect of the divine, Elohim, but from Achorayim, the hindermost part of Hashem's will, the part where he just gives it as though someone throwing something to his enemy over his shoulder. No intrinsic desire, just to serve another purpose. This is called the hinder part of the supernal will. Thus we see that the Klippas are designated as Elohim Acherim, other gods, because they derive from Achorayim, the hinder part of the divine will. Okay, so that is where the Klippas derive their life force. Now let's look at everything else. That's Klippa. Klippa derives its life force from Achorayim. But what about the worlds and all the created beings? Where do they fit in? Now the supernal will, the quality of countenance, meaning the inner aspect of Hashem's will, which is directed toward the ultimate object of Hashem's desire, is the source of life which animates all the worlds. So all, what, why was the world created? Right there on the first passage of the Torah, it says, In the beginning, Hashem created heaven and earth. The Chachamim say this Pasuk, this verse from the Torah, this Pasuk says, explain me. There are so many things to explain in the terminology of this verse. Why these words? What does this mean? And so one of the things that our sages teach us on this verse, the first word in the Torah is beratious, in the beginning. Take that word and instead of beratious in the beginning, beginning read it like this. Bez ratius or bishvil ratius. For racious. The world was created for two things that are called racious. Racious means the first. It says about the Jewish people, About the Jewish people, it says, Jeremiah the prophet says, Israel is holy to Hashem, the first of his produce. The Jewish people are called racious. And there's another thing that's called racious in Mishle, and that's the Torah. It's called racious darko, the first of his way. The world was created. If you want to know, we were talking about three levels of will, and we we're saying the innermost aspect of Hashem's will. What's Hashem's interest? What's his internal desire? What does he yearn for the most? For these two things. He yearns for the Jewish people. He yearns for Torah and mitzvahs. That is the innermost aspect of his will. And where does the world get its life force from? The world itself is still getting its life force. In order for the Jewish people to keep Torah and mitzvahs, you need a world. Hashem created the world so that we can fulfill Torah and mitzvahs. Now, it's, it's hard for us to relate to the world that way. You have to understand that. It's, you know, the, the, the Talmud tells us about gold, that all the gold in the world was created in order so that there should be gold in the base Hamikdash in the Holy Temple. And this is, expresses the ultimate truth. You have to look at the world and realize this is the absolute truth. And why was the entire universe created with all of its galaxies? Everything that exists is here so that the Jewish people can serve Hashem through the medium of Torah and mitzvahs. So when Hashem gives life to the world, He gives it not in His innermost space of Torah and Jewish people, but He still gives it from an inner space. What we call the external aspect of will, but not the hindermost aspect of will. Like giving a present to somebody who you like for an ulterior motive. So all the worlds receive their life force from the countenance. 
as opposed to where the Sitra Achara receives its life force from. Sitra Achara receives its life force, no countenance at all, only from the hindermost aspect of Hashem, whereas in contrast, all of the worlds and all of the created beings that are not opposed to Hashem, that are not evil or unholy, receive their life force from the countenance. Now the supernal will of the quality of countenance, the inner aspect of Hashem's will, which is directed toward the ultimate object of God's desire, is the source of life which animates all worlds. But since it is not bestowed on the Sitra Achra at all, and even the hinder part of the divine will is not actually closed within it, but merely encompasses it from above, therefore it is the abode of death and impurity. May God preserve us from them. Okay, so this sentence is loaded. And in order to understand the concept in the sentence, we have to look at the way that Hashem bestows life. There's two ways that Hashem bestows life on, this uni- on the universe, besides these three levels of will. Now we're talking about how does Hashem bestow life? There's two ways. There's what we call in Kabbalah, or makif, in encompassing light, and or panimi, which is in imminent inner light. The difference between makif and panimi is like this. When when the, the divine energy is bestowed in a way that is encompassing, there's, is that my baby? No, it's mine. She sounds just like mine. <laughs> um, when divine energy is bestowed in a way of makif, an encompassing way, it remains aloof from the receiver of its energy. So the, the, the created being that receives energy in a way of makif does not perceive that it's receiving energy. It does not, the energy is there, it's giving it life, but it is not felt within at all. The, the being does not change for it. For example, sunlight in a room. The room does not essentially change because there's sunlight in the room. There's sunlight and then the sunlight is removed and it's the same room. So the sunlight fills the room and yet the room does not change, there's no, Nothing different about the room. Yes, there's something different, but I'm saying the makeup or quality of the room is not different because of the sunlight. But then, what about a soul in a body? When a soul is within a body, it's not just, oh, here's a body that moves because there's a soul in it. The very flesh of the body is different when there's a soul in it. The the energy becomes so one with the body that the body itself becomes a different type of thing because there is soul within it. So that's what happens when energy is united with the thing that it gives life to in a panimi way, in a way that it's imminent, that it becomes one with it and the, the one who receives that energy perceives the source of the energy. There's a relationship. When it's encompassing, the source of light remains aloof. It is beyond the, the created being and they do not feel that there's energy within it. But when it actually permeates it and it becomes an imminent energy innermost within the being, it senses the source of the energy, okay? So now we're saying two things about the klipa, the sitra akhara. One thing is that the energy that it gets is from the externalmost aspect of Hashem's will, achorayim. And even that energy that it gets does not unite with it in an internal way. Instead, it remains aloof. 
It remains aloof in an encompassing way, in a way of makif, that it doesn't even sense that this is where it's getting its energy from. So it's getting the most external level of energy, and even that energy that it does get is coming to it in a way that it remains aloof, that it does not sense the source of its energy. So that's why we're calling the, the klipa and sitra achra the place of death and impurity. Why is it called death? I don't understand why it would be called death. It gets its life force from Hashem. It has life force. It gets its life force from Hashem. Why is it called a place of death? The reason why it's called a place of death is because although it has life force within, it has life force, and it does actually, as we're going to see, have a little bit within it. But the life force that it has, it does not identify with. It is... It is anti-life. It does not show the life that it has. When something is alive, it shows the source of its energy. You know, when you see a person and the person is talking, you don't think of them just as a physical object that takes up space. You are very aware of the fact that there's a higher energy that permeates this person and that is expressed through the person. You see a live person and you don't just think of them as a thing that takes up space, you realize that there's something more than a body going on over here, and this person expresses something that is, is revealed through them, a soul. This person is alive. Now, something that has, something that has the energy, the divine energy, which gives it life, <coughs> life, and yet, bless you, and yet, it does not uh, show the source of his life, is now considered a thing of death. It's, it's a hard concept to understand because you say, well, we see it. So why is it, why is it not alive? It's, it's not alive because it's a lie. At the core of it, it's really nothing. It says it's one thing, but if you appeal the layers of its existence, you're going to see there's nothing within it at all. If you hold it under the microscope, it doesn't exist. That's what a, a lie is. A lie is, it looks good. <laughs> until you're saying, one second, what was the date over there? And why doesn't this make sense? And all of a sudden, you hold it under a microscope, and there's nothing to it. It's all made up. It's a sham. That's what the klipa and sitra achor is. It gets its entire life force from Hashem, and yet it does not show where it gets its life force from. It doesn't even relate to the life force that it gets. And so therefore, although it has life in order to give it to existence, it doesn't show its higher life. It just is what it is. It's a fake. It's nothing. It's, it's, it's just a lie. Can you compare what you just said to uh-huh. a Jew who... Uh, is in a business of lying and cheating and um, like how would that be? The, do they not have a soul? Like they have a, a soul. soul. So they have a soul and because Hashem gave us freedom of choice, their soul is in a very, is in exile. To such an extent. So it's not within them? Depends how bad they are. Somebody who is called a Russia Viralo in the terms of the Tanya, somebody who's called that he is so bad that his, his, uh, he has, he's like a really evil person, mm-hmm. then his divine soul doesn't actually leave him, but it, it's now in a way of encompassing light. So just like how within uh, this object that you're saying does not realize that he's getting the energy as he's walking, this is hovering over him? Exactly. He doesn't realize where he gets his energy from. Just like the Klippa and Sitra Achar don't realize where they get their energy from, this person who denies the truth lives in a way that he, he's getting divine energy from Hashem and he does, he's not aware of it. He doesn't feel it. Awesome. I, I must have told you this story before about the two brothers, Rabbi Eli Melech Milizhensk and Rabbi Zushav Anapoli. 
They were two holy brothers. They were students of the Magad of Mezrich, colleagues of the Alter Rebbe, and they were wander about as, as itinerant beggars. Nobody knew who they were. And um, one time they were walking, and suddenly Reb Zusha falls on the floor, just drops. And his brother looks at him like, you know, what's up, are you okay? And he goes, for one moment, I actually felt like I was walking by myself. <laughs> he, he, for one moment, he felt like he lost consciousness, that there's no reality other than Hashem, and it's impossible for a person to walk by themselves. And so he let himself drop to make it clear that there's no such thing as walking by yourself. That's the absolute truth. The, the question is, how in tune are we th- with that reality? So the Klippa and the Sitra Ahura are not in tune with that reality. And the life energy that they get, besides from it being from the externalmost aspect of the divine will, it also is in an encompassing fashion. There's no relationship going on. It doesn't sense it. It doesn't acknowledge it. So now, if, if that's the case that it's only encompassing, we have to say something because the Arizal teaches us that there is no thing in this universe that does not have divine energy within it. Even a stone, a rock, dirt, water, everything has a soul. So the klipa, the sitra achra, in order for it to exist, has to have some level of soul within it, not just encompassing it, but actually within it. So how, how is it? So yes, there is a little bit. For the minute measure of light and life that it derives and that it absorbs internally from the external aspect of divine holiness is in a state of actual exile within it, as in the concept of the exile of the Shekhinah within the people described earlier. We learned about this concept in chapter 19. And we also discussed that in chapter 17. And um, so briefly, there is some... First, let's, let's divide over here. First of all, from the two levels of whether it comes from the countenance or from behind Hashem's back, it comes from Hashem's back. So when it comes... The divine light that comes from Hashem's countenance, that does not rest at all on the klipa. That has no relationship with the klipa. The innermost aspect of Hashem's will, no relationship with the klipa. What level of Hashem's will does it have a relationship with? It has a relationship with Achorayim de Kedusha, the hindermost, Deretzon, the hindermost, hindermost aspect of Hashem's will. Now, even that hindermost aspect of Hashem's will does not dwell within the klipa. It maintains a distance. It's like aloof. It has no relationship with it. It's apart from it. And it's not sensed by the klipa at all. And still, there is a very minute amount that does go into the klipa to give it life. You have to say it, otherwise it can't exist. But this small amount that it does have is in a state of exile. What is exile? Exile is the person is there, but they are not able to use their energies to serve themselves. So they have to be doing all these activities, and yet they're serving an enemy. And that's how it is with this. It says, wherever they went to exile, the Shekhinah went with them. So that is... That's what the Talmud tells us about the Jewish people went to Edom and the Shekhinah was with them. And that's in praise of the Jewish people, wherever they are. Even in exile, Hashem is with them. But then there's a deeper level to this, and that is that the Shekhinah itself, this aspect of the divine that gives life to the whole world, is in exile. And it gives life to things that not just don't acknowledge it, but even deny it. Is it the craziest thing? They get their life from Hashem. They don't feel that the life force comes from Hashem, and yet they are able to deny it. 
in order to illustrate what this is like of giving energy to something and from an internal manner and yet not being able to express yourself, the example is given of Gilgulim in reincarnations. The human soul comes down, God forbid, to be within an animal's body, right? So the human soul is giving life to the animal's body, and yet it has no form of human expression. So it's giving life to this animal. It's there, it's imminent, it's within it, and yet it has no expression. It remains entrapped in exile. And that's how it is with this minute measure of divine life that gives light to the klipa. It's there, it's giving it life, but it has no form of expression. In a normal, healthy relationship, it's the human soul vivifies the human body. And we're not talking even about the divine soul, we're just talking about the animal soul. When a human animal soul, we're calling it an animal soul, but the human biological soul animates the body, the body is there to express the soul. Whatever the soul wants, what you want to do, you want to walk somewhere, the body then expresses that. But if a human soul is in an animal, the animal does not give expression to the to the human soul. It's there, it's giving it life, and yet it is trapped and has no form of expression. I mean, if you really think about that, it, it makes you cry. <laughs> you realize that there's this state of illness in the world where Hashem is giving life to everything, and yet there are beings, and we don't want to be one of them, that get their life from Hashem, and at the very same time that they get life and energy from Him, deny Him. And not only do they deny him, they rebel against him. Is it, um, I'm sorry, is it like what she was saying? They have the light, but because of Klippa and Klippa, because of the choices they made, um, they had a free choice, but they made the wrong ones. They become like putting a, a fabric on top of a light uh-huh. and putting more and more, then the, you can't see the light anymore. Until it's utterly concealed. Right. A person who is in that state... Who has, who has a rush of Varalo, who literally his good has left him, at that point, it's like he has no freedom of choice. In the beginning, he had freedom of choice. You know, like before a person becomes a drug addict. Before they became the drug addict, they had the choice whether or not to take drugs. At one point already, they lose their freedom of choice. Now, nobody completely loses their freedom of choice. We read that. When, when it says, uh, Hashem hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. That's it. That's, That's exactly it. But, but and the, Maimonides speaks about that. And even, Paro lost his freedom of choice, but even he, if he would have pushed, he would have been able to do teshuva. It's just at that point, it says, Habalatar Messiah. And I say somebody who comes to do holy things, to, be, to do the right thing, he is assisted from heaven. But somebody who has reached this space, he doesn't, he doesn't receive assistance anymore. But if he wants to push, he can still push. And Paro, he lost his special divine assistance at that point, but he, he still held accountable because if he would have held strong, he could have still done the right thing. Okay, so we'll sum up this section that we did until now, and then we'll go to the next section. What we said until now is why the Klippa and Sitra Achor is called by the term Elohim Acherim, other gods. It's not because we're calling them other gods. It's not because we're calling them idols. It's because of the source of nurture where they get their life. They get their life from Achorayim. Elohim Achorayim. They get their life from Elohim, but it's coming from a level of Achorayim, the hindermost aspect of Hashem's law. But now we're going to see the other reason why they're called Elohim Achorayim. And this, in this instance, they're actually called idols. 
They are called actual idol worship. It is for this reason that the klipa is termed other gods, apart from the reason given above, namely that the klipa is derived from Achorayim, the hinder part of Hashem's will. Shahi mamish For it consists, constitutes actual idolatry and a denial of the unity of God, the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. This is just three paragraphs over here. I'm going to read it because it's, it's very well explained. The explanation of these two reasons is as follows. Every created being is animated by two types of divine life force. One is an internalized life force, which is beamed to suit the character and capacity of each individual creature. It is this power that determines the character of each being. It becomes one with it and is felt by it. In fact, this internalized life force constitutes its identity. The second type of life force is an encompassing transcendental nature. It does not adapt itself to the individual character of each being and is not clothed within it. Rather, it animates it from without, so to speak, from its own level above the creative being which it animates. The Kalipais too are animated by these two types of divine life force. The latter type, since it does not permeate them, does not conflict with their ego. The Kalipo can thus consider themselves independent beings, even while acknowledging God as the source of their vitality. They do not they need not deny him. With regard to this type of godly life force, the Klipot are called Elokemacherim, other gods, only because they receive their life force from Achorayim, the hinder part of God's will. The Klipo ca- cannot, however, acknowledge the former internalized type of godly life force while asserting at the very same time that they are separate from God. To do so would be self-contradictory. For as explained, this kind of life force constitutes the very identity of every created being. The Klipo, therefore, completely deny this life force, and it is thus truly in a state of exile within them. It is thus with regard to this life force that the Klipos are called Elohim Acherim, other gods, in the literal sense of the term, implying idolatry and denial of God's unity. So really, these two terms for klipa, the fact that they get their energy from the hindermost part of the divine and that they are actual idolatry, are interdependent. Because they do not feel where their energy comes from, then they can go on to be somebody who den- something that actually denies God. They don't feel Hashem, so then they go and actually deny Hashem, and that's where they get this term, Elohim Acherim, that they are actual idolatry. In which world they are they? Like in the level of creation when so level Klipa, Klipa originates all the way up. The only thing is in its highest place it doesn't it's not as corrupt as it's here down here. Right. So we're talking about the same person. Uh huh. So where which world is it? Well, the person who is, you're saying a person who's a Russia, Uh right? You're saying at which level are they a Russia? Is that what you're saying? Uh At which level are they considered a wicked person? At which level uh, are they living? Where totally uh, their Shekhinah is in exile. That out, like uh, the most Russia, whatever. Okay, so a Russia Viralo, a wicked person and it's evil to him. That he... that's what it's called, Russia Viralo. That's the term of the utmost kind of Russia. Actually, what, what is he, you're saying? What is he? Where in like in this where, world? No. Where, yeah, where He's is he? in this world? Like yeah, but with the, you know how we say Atzilut, and mm-hmm. uh, then the lowest is his the his soul. His soul comes from the divine, but in this world that he's living, 
he right now he's living in the world, world of Asiya. He's living in our world. In our world. Yeah. He's he's, he's around us. He's right. Is that yeah. Right? He's living in this kind of space. It's only it's this only space. in this world. This this physical world is the most amazing world. Well, we because it's about only right. Because only in this world that any being could outrightly deny God. In every other world, you cannot. You see it right in front of you. In any other world, you see God. There's no option of denying him. It's like you see something right in front of you. Not just you see it. You're like going to say, breathing doesn't help me live. Are you crazy? You're feeling that you're breathing all the time. So you, it's not possible to speak that way. Mm-hmm. It's only in our world that a person can say, oh, breathing doesn't help me live. It's not because of breathing that I'm not because of breathing I'm alive. Yes, there's breathing, that's true, but it's not because of breathing I'm alive. You can't say something that so ridiculous. The character that this person has, we're talking about character. Okay. Right? So it says that there are two um, two reasons. Okay. One which is within, right? Like one is an internalized life force, which they are very um, like far. Okay. Okay, Wait. so one second. I want to tell you something. about Right, right here, it gave like a whole dissertation on internalized life force. And they were talking about makif and panimi, encompassing light right. and vivifying light. Okay. These two levels of the divine light, encompassing light is literally what brings everything into being. Mm-hmm. From something to nothing, and actually later on, the altar of his words are going to suggest it and we'll talk about it more in detail. From something to nothing, all of it comes from the same level. The, the makif, the encompassing light. At this point, it's just bringing things from into being from non-being. But then there's the individual character of each created being. There's a different it's type of light. Right, and that's the within the light. So even, even uh, any type of creature, no matter what, is going to need some type of this type of internalized light to give it its unique form. And even a wicked person, no matter how bad he is, is going to have this thing within him. The the thing with him is that he has the divine within him, and yet he is denying the divine. The saddest part about it is that the Jewish person has not just a regular human soul, he has a divine soul. And this divine, oh no, sorry, I have a babysitter here too, and I'm like, where's the little baby? No, no, no. <laughs> That's my babysitter. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so remind me which part I was up to. Oh yes, the saddest part is that the divine uh, the, within the Jewish person, there's actually a part of Hashem. Right. And so they are, they are so powerful. Away. That's why you see, like, you know, like all the, these these all these movements, right? We're we're headed by Jewish people like Karl mm-hmm. Marx, and they were taking right. they have a Jewish person just by virtue of being, yeah, just by virtue of being Jewish, they have a sense of transcendence. So you're talking about the internal force of the internal spark of Hashem, which is the neshama, which is like the soul, right? Yeah. That's the spark of Hashem inside us. But a lot of people don't choose to listen to the Yetzer Tov, or the, you know, the neshama speaking. So, the, so it's guarded by klipot, by all these like shells around it. Is that that you like? Then you're getting further and further removed from Hashem's will for you, like what Hashem truly wants you to do. So, so um, you're saying that it's that's layered with the klipot, and it's true. But klipa is also a term that we use just for all the negative forces. 
Anything external. External, but any of the negative forces or where Hashem is not perceived in Kabbalah, they are sourced in the klipa. It depends how deep the klipa is. But what about internal people? So, so when we're talking about the internal and the encompassing, we're talking about the divine energy. There's internal divine energy and there's external divine energy. Mm-hmm. Not external, encompassing divine energy. Mm-hmm. The encompassing divine energy, Rabbi Shandles gives the example of, of gravity. He gives the he gives the example of gravity. Mm-hmm. Everything created in this world is affected by gravity. Mm-hmm. In this, the earth, and the earth. But um, now, each one has their unique form, and that's not anymore about gravity. Then it's the internal life force that's particular to that created being. So my question is so your from question, which sephirot? Like, you know how a oh, you're, So basically, you're so confounded by this very evil person, okay? So you, right? You're so confounded, you're just like, man, where does he come from? <laughs> how could he be so bad? Basically, is that your question? So does does, soul, where, does it, each person has three, um, like... Intellectual faculties and seven and emotional seven. faculties. But and yes, and he has and them that all. We know that within each of those faculties are being, being right, right, like, uh-huh. which is infinite. Right. Okay. So, which one would it be, like Malkut, or, or, or? Okay. So, in general, a low-level soul. If we don't know, we actually don't know the level of somebody's soul. There could be somebody who is so wicked and is a very high-level soul. The term that we use to speak of a very, very lo- low-level soul is nefesh, the nefesh, the malchus, the asiyah. It's like basically the lowest level within every level. Mm-hmm. But just because somebody is wicked, it doesn't mean that they have a low-level soul. In fact, they might be a very powerful, holy person, uh, potential for holy. Like the Talmud says, Kol ha-gadomechavero yitzro gadol himenu. Whoever is greater than his fellow also has a bigger Yetzahara. <laughs> it has yeah. to be a fair fight. And in fact, Esau, Esav, had greater potential than did Yaakov. He had a greater, higher power, divine power. But look how bad he was because he abused it. Now, so you're going to say, he's so evil, I want to know which one of the ten sefirot he comes from. Evil, just like goodness, will will express itself in its own channel and each channel has its own way of expressing. So let's say somebody is a uh, person of kindness, right? So Abraham represented kindness of holiness and his goodness was expressed through, his, his divine goodness was expressed through this measure of kindness. His son, Yishmael, was considered kindness of klipa and his corruption was expressed through chesed. It doesn't mean that every corrupt person could, is an expression of chesed. We don't know. Their corruption, their, we don't know where their soul is sourced in, and their ultimate mode of expression, they're just corrupting it. So, and for example, Isaac was the divine manifestation of givura, severity, which is also like discipline, and his son, Asaph, was the corruption of so at the severity. Ultimate, so we don't know. I, basically, all I can tell you is I don't have x-ray glasses. I can't I look know, at it and say, Woo, I so, see where you come from. You At the ultimate point, isn't that what Hashem wanted for that person to be, or for me, or for the next one? Hashem wanted to him have to have freedom character. of choice. Hashem wanted the freedom so of choice. And it says Hashem, it was, Baruch Hu Trunia so that means Hashem doesn't come with unfair demands of his creation. So 
He gave him freedom of choice. He gave him a very, very dark and hard struggle, but he also gave him the power to overcome it. So when these vessels were broken, it was by chance that no one chance. fell here or that? No chance. No, everything is by divine determination. So then at the, po- at the very ultimate point, it was his will. No? So now you're asking, is there divine, if does the divine knowledge interfere with human free choice? That's basically your question. Uh-huh. Meaning that That's the paradox of free will. Hashem knows everything, and yet we have freedom of choice. Hashem knew he was going to be evil. Hashem did not make him be evil. He had the choice of whether to be evil or not. But how does divine knowledge and uh, human free choice, how do they overlap, basically? So that is the, the, one of the mysteries of life. The Rambam speaks about it. Maimonides speaks about it. He basically says it's very hard to answer this question for you. But um, there's, there are many, many classes given just to explain this idea of divine knowledge and freedom of choice. One analogy given was, uh, you know, you weren't able to watch the baseball game, so you had it taped. And then afterwards, you watch the game. So... Does it matter? Like at this point, you know what they're doing. Your knowledge of what they're doing, did it affect their choices? It didn't affect their choices. You, you have knowledge of what they did, it all, but it did not affect their choice. For Hashem, past, present, and future is all the same thing. So, but that's very easy to say that, but to truly understand that is not that easy. And that's just you know, an analogy which is going to be imperfect. Beyond our, Be, beyond our understanding. But I heard it quoted in the name of Rabbi Nachman of Breslau that we should not neglect trying to understand these subjects. We need to try to understand it. It stretches the limit of our intellect and we'll get it to some point. And then when we get it at that point, we'll have new horizons open to us to understand it at a deeper point. We're not absolved from trying to resolve it. But I I wish I could answer the question for you and I can't. (laughs) So we'll have to continue next time. And we'll, we will, just, next time we're not going to look at just the klipa, but we're also going to look at the person and, uh, who, who denies Hashem and understand what it means, idolatry in that sense. And uh, before we go, I just want to summarize what we said until now so that we have it. We are looking at the Word of God that created all of the worlds. And before we were saying the Word of God never has become separate from Him, and while that is true, Hashem's Word, even though He spoke it, and revealed creation through his spoken word, it actually never left him, unlike the human speech, which leaves us and becomes separate from us after we have spoken it. So then we said, oh, that's only true from the divine perspective, but from the human perspective, although the divine word never left him, from our perspective, it has become separate. And no, true, there is nothing, there is nothing that's outside of the divine, but our perspective that something has become separate is actually there's a truth to that. And that's because Hashem has made not just regular contractions, but these extremely powerful contractions of His light that allow to come into being forces that deny Him. And these forces that deny Him get their energy from the hindermost aspect of His will that He hates, but He does it anyway in order to create the the possibility for freedom of choice. So that's what we've said until now. And this week we're going to use our freedom of choice to align ourselves with Hashem. And next week we will continue on what is Elohim Achayramin. Yes. You mentioned that the Rebbe said that um, we should give even to our enemies. But I remember that 
The Rebbe specifically said when we were supposed to give land back to the enemies. No, no, no. I never ever said that. <laughs> to give to even enemies, you said they even don't even First look at First of all, change your give back, give away. <laughs> <laughs> the, give away. Here, the Alter Rebbe is explaining, <laughs> the Alter Rebbe is explaining why Hashem, why Hashem and how Hashem gives energy to the forces of unholiness. He gives forces, he gives energy to the forces of unholiness so that we can have freedom of choice. How does he give forces to unholiness? Not by from the internal aspect oh, with love, Hashem, is Hashem. Okay, Hashem the way he gives energy. We're supposed to, to give to our enemies, I thought. We're not supposed to give to our enemies. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> I, maybe you're confusing it with like, we're, we're supposed to help, like if you see like your enemy's donkey with, right? So what are oh, you so, talking about? Like you no one even look at it, you just... So we're saying, let's say you have to give something to your energy, an enemy. For some reason, you have to give something to your enemy in order to achieve something that you need. In order to achieve something that you need, you're going to need to give something to your enemy. So now, do you want to do it? No, you don't want to do it. So instead of facing your enemy, you just throw it. This is to take what's going on in the divine and make it understandable to us on a human level. How would you give it to your enemy? You, you, hopefully you don't have any enemies, but you would throw it over your shoulder and not even look at them. So that's the way Hashem gives energy to the klipa. Not by face to face, but by throwing it, as it were, over the back. Not even from, not from an internal place. It's from the ex- most external, most aspect of himself because he hates it. It's just to achieve something that he desires. But that's the very hindermost part of his will. But that's an analogy. That's an analogy. Right. It's not a literal. Right. It's, it's an analogy. And as far as giving things to enemies, I mean, depends what kind of enemy. If there's, you know, enemies of the Jewish people, we don't give anything to them. Then we're talking about, unfortunately, two Jewish people who have a fight going on, that's something different, and that's where the Torah tells us, if you see the, the donkey of your enemy underneath its load, then you should help your enemy. But this is something, that's something different. So to make it clear, no, we don't give, we don't give things to our enemies. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. <laughs>